That's, that's a pretty good job for, you know, no, no, no prep, right? Uh, so if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn to Matthew uh, chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, we are looking again at uh, Baptist distinctives. Uh, what does it mean to be, to be a Baptist church? And believe it or not, um, what we're going to talk about today, congregationalism, right? A riveting topic on a Sunday night after a long day. But I, I promise you, this, this kind of stuff is really important in terms of how we structure our stuff. We know that God is not a God of chaos, but a God of order. And when I do a new membership interview, so anyone who wants to join the church, I, I do a membership interview. I usually always take into Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 because I ask them a question. Do you know the difference between a Presbyterian church and a Baptist church? Usually I get the answer, well, no. How are we different? What makes us distinct as a congregation? I'm just going to read Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. I'll pray, then I'll just do a, a brief overview of what it means to be a congregational church. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. And now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight and the great privilege we have to study your word. Father, as we come together as a congregation to uh, hear and learn about the matters of the church and church government, we pray, God, that you would help us see the value uh, in how we structure our congregation, Father, that we would be a church that uh, is, is pure and uh, tries to honor you in all that we do um, by obedience to your word. So, Father, bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so the first uh, heading here is what are the options? What are the potential options that you see kind of floating around in terms of the life of the church? Uh, the f one option is, is a Episcopalian form of church government. So Episcopalian comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means bishop. So there, it's, a, it's a structure in a, in a hierarchy, right? So you have a bishop, right? And then the bishop kind of decides and is the final authority on the matters of life in in the church, right? So they may have local leaders, but the bishop is the final authority or is the final say. So you have the, the Episcopalian form of church government. The next one you have is the Presbyterian form of church government. And the Presbytery is a, is a little bit different because they have a, a group of elders, right? Not one bishop, but they have a, a, a Presbytery, which comes from the Greek, Greek word Presbutero, which means elder, right? So they have a, a group of elders who, who make the final decisions for an area of churches, right? So the presbytery is in charge of a, a certain uh, region uh, or area of, of churches. In Within each congregation, they have a, a rule and elders uh, who are ruling the church, right? So you have Episcopalian, bishop, Presbyterian, a group of elders, and then you kind of have a, kind of maybe, maybe kind of right there in the middle is an elder-ruled church, it's 
most often a non-denominational church, oftentimes a multi-site congregation. And what an elder rule church is, is that the final authority of the church is not the church body, but it's the elders. So the elders, like it says, rule. They really get that from 1 Timothy 5.17. It says the elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. This idea of ruling is the final authority is invested in, in the elders. So as you go down, we get to congregational. We are not any of the previous ones mentioned. We are a congregational church, meaning the final authority of this church is the church, is the congregation, right? So we, we can kind of think about what that means here in a second, but uh, and I really where, where we get this from is right here in Matthew chapter 16. So right really quickly on to the second point, what is the biblical basis for congregationalism? Right, the biblical basis for congregationalism. Now, some people, when you start talking about matters of how to structure the church, it's very popular today to say, "Who cares? Who cares in terms of how we structure our church?" Right, as long as we love Jesus, isn't that all that matters? Well, well, yes, but when you love Jesus, you, you want to obey Him and you want to do what He says and how He structures His Word. And we, if we think that God has has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, Second Peter chapter one, verse three through four. We should care what the Word of God says about how we structure the church. So there's really the two places that we're going to, we're going to kind of walk through several uh, scriptures here. But I'm going to give you my argument from the Bible why I think that the best form of church government is congregationalism. I mean, the final authority of the church, of matters of life and doctrine, is the church, is you. And what I'm doing here is I'm putting the onus of the health and well-being of the church not on me, but in you, in the people of God. And I think that's what the Bible would have us believe and see. So the first thing is we, we go to Matthew 16. What you see here is uh, Jesus talking with his disciples and talking about who they say that he is. And Simon uh, responds to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see a confession right there about the doctrine of who Jesus Christ is. He is God in the flesh, the God-man Fully God and fully man. He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You would not have known this on your own, but my Father who is in heaven by His Spirit has opened your eyes to believe and see that I am the Christ. And He says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So notice what he's doing here. You see, like I said this last week, he's building the church on the confession of Peter and those who confess. Right? So I don't think that we can say Peter or the confession, right? The Catholics will say Peter, we're going to build the rock on the Pope, the papal succession. Well, we're not saying that. We're saying God is going to build his church on people who confess his name. Period. Okay? And then it's very interesting as he goes on, he says this, And I will tell you, Peter, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's giving this keys language. This is, a, this is an issue of authority. He's giving the, the church authority to govern who is a believer and who is not a believer. I think that's what he's primarily doing here. 
So in the same gospel, this is the first time in the whole New Testament where church is membered, right? church, ecclesia, the called out ones, or the assembly. We see that here in Matthew 16. Just turn two chapters over to go to Matthew 18. This is a passage that many of you are familiar with, Matthew 18, verse 15. He's speaking about how you deal with, with sin in the life of a church. It says, if your brother sins against you, verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your, gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take, it, take one or two along, others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, right, so this progression, one and then two and three, if he refuses to listen to a group of people within the congregation telling them to turn away from sin, tell it to the elders. No, that's not what it says, right? Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. What, he's do, what Jesus is saying here is that the final authority is invested in the church, the assembly, the gathering together of the believers. Now, a lot of Presbyterians read into this text church leaders. I don't think you can do that. It doesn't say elders. There's a Greek word for elders. It's called presbyteros, right? There's a, there's a word for bishop. It's called episcopos. It doesn't say that. It says what? The church, the ecclesia, the, the called out ones, the assembly. And it keeps on going here. It says, same language, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or, two of you agree on, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Even there, you see the two or three as, as a mini-assembly, as, as a gathering of the, the church. There's this binding and loosing language, and I really believe the binding and loosing language is the issue of keys and authority. In, in our Western culture, we don't think that anybody has the right to tell us where we stand with God. We're individuals, so we're, the highest virtue in America is individualism, right? Manifest destiny, uh, 1840s uh, on, this rugged individual. We do pull ourselves up from our bootstraps, Horatio, uh, Elger. Well, listen, that's not always good. The highest virtue in the New Testament is not the individual. It's usually the community. So in, in certain cultures, the community is the one who affirms whether you're a believer or not. It's really what we do with John David today. Right? What, you, what we did with John David, John David stood up and he shared his testimony, his, his, his confirmation, his confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and we affirm that confession. And it, it wasn't, didn't happen just when he stood up here and, and shared. It happened behind the scenes, right? Hearing his testimony, praying with him, me as a father and as a pastor. The same thing I did with Ryan, the same thing I did with, with Connor before him, and we're walking through making sure that they believe in, in Christ. Well, notice that bringing John David into membership and bringing in Moses last week and Mark and Kristen Bowers, I didn't bring them into membership. I did the hard work of getting to know their testimony, make sure they're the believers, but who brought them in? The church. Do I hear a motion? Yes. Do I hear it seconded? Yes. All in favor? Yes. Well, now you have just opened the doors of heaven, right? You have opened heaven. You have opened whatever you bound on earth binds in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven. You as a church said, yes, we believe that you're a Christian. 
You are in the family. So notice here, the final authority is vested in the congregation. A few more places I want you to see. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So in, in issues of whether someone is a Christian or not, we don't know someone's heart. Nobody really knows but God, right? Only God knows the heart. But what a church does is a church affirms or removes their affirmation of whether they believe someone's a Christian. Either yes, we, we believe based on your testimony and based on your life that you are a believer. Or we, we don't believe based on your testimony or based on your life. Because you can deny Christ in two ways. You can deny him by what you believe or you can deny him by how you live. Look what the, the passage says in 1 Corinthians 5 here. It says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. You being here, every time you see the word you in this passage, it's not you individual, but it's you corporate or y'all, right? Y'all. Sexual, sexual immorality among you all and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you all are arrogant. Ought you all rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you all. Notice what he's not doing here. He's not talking to the elders. He's not talking to the pastors of the church. He's talking to the church. The church is accountable for every life inside the church. The church binds and the church looses. And I think what happens when you have an Episcopalian form of church government, if you have a, a, a Presbyterian form of church government, or an elder-ruled form of church government, what you do is that you remove the authority of the authority and responsibility of membership from the members. Basically, you say you fire them from their responsibilities. And I think that's unbiblical. I think that you need to be held accountable if there is sin inside the church. Because that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus is, is doing here through the Apostle, Apostle Paul. Listen as it goes on, verse 3. For though abstinent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on you who did such a thing, on the one who did such a thing. When you all are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you all are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to go into all the benefits and all the things about church discipline here. All I want you to see is when they are assembled together, when the church gathers, when you are the assembly of the church, you all are called to bind people, and in this case, loose them. Let them beat you as a, as a Gentile or a tax collector. Why? It's because he's not living for the Lord. He looks to be as a non-Christian. So you need to remove him from the church. Now, as, as an elder pastor, I may make that recommendation to you one day. Based on everything that we're seeing, their testimony and or their life, I don't know if this person's a Christian. I want you to be, be praying and helping this person out. Then I may come to you one day and say, Beloved, it grieves me. It saddens my heart, but we must, I recommend that this person be removed from our membership. And then I do what? I step back. Because I can't remove anybody, right? No pastor, elder can in a congregational form of church government. Who does? The congregation. The congregation does. Which, which 
even in, in the fact that there is this idea, identification of when you are assembled, there's a certain number of people who are assembled, have them be removed from among you, implies membership. Membership is implied here. Go to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. It says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you would rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Most scholars think this is the same man talked about in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. He was put out from the congregation. It seems as if he repented, he turned from his sins. And it says here is that the penalty of the majority, when the church assembly, the majority of people said this man should be put out of the congregation. And now what Paul is saying is now it's time as a congregation to bring him back in. Forgive him as a church. You put him out as a church, you forgive him as a church. He's not speaking about elders, as you see in the Presbyterian form of church government or elder rule. It's a very hip thing among Baptist churches to become elder ruled churches, where the elders have the final authority. And I think that you just step outside the bounds of the New Testament. It's the elders lead. They, they, are, they are nominated, they are elected by the people of God, they are affirmed uh, by the people, but it is the church who makes the final authorities of binding and, and loosing. One more place, uh, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. This is, uh, we've already seen in reference to their lifestyle, so denying Christ by either your doctrine or your life. Uh, we see that by the life of 1 Corinthians. But in, in Galatians chapter 1, he's holding the whole church accountable for doctrine. Look at verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you all in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who, who trouble you all and to the, distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you all a, a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you all, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you all a gospel contrary to the one you all receive, let him be accursed. Who is responsible to make sure that there's good teaching? The church. So if, if I start preaching a gospel that is contrary to the New Testament, it is your responsibility to get me out. Right? Take me down. Paul is saying, if I, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, or an angel from heaven come and preach a different gospel. Church, get them out. The job of the purity of life and doctrine is your responsibility, church. And if you outsource it to the elders, we are not a congregational church and we will not be a strong church. Because one pastor, two pastors, three pastors cannot be at every conversation at every time in the life of a church. It is the church's responsibility to, to protect and guard and, and beautify the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the sake of time, I'm not going to talk about um, leadership, right? Uh, I think there's three things 
Let me just, let me just go there. There's three things I think a congregation should vote on, right? Because usually when we think about congregationalism, the reason why most people don't like congregationalism and most young pastors want to avoid it like the plague because they think that it's, it's going to slow down the pace of the church and it's going to become, uh, hey, we need to uh, choose what color the carpeting is. Let's have a big discussion and let's pray as a congregation to choose the coloring of, of the car carpeting, right? Blood red, we've already decided, right? Kidding, right? But there's that, there's that, no, there's certain things that you want to give the leadership of the church decisions over, right? Should we not or should we buy a space heater for someone's Sunday school classroom because it doesn't get a lot of heat with the central air? Congregation, let's have a church meeting. Church, what do you think that we should do with the space heater? What kind of space heater should it be? Should we get the $40 one or the $60 one, right? How often should we should we turn the space heater on? Should we turn it on, on on Saturday night or should we turn it on early on Sunday morning? That's what most people think about congregationalism, right? That you have to you have to make decisions about everything. I don't think that's anywhere in the New Testament. Okay, I think there's three things that you should, two necessary things, and then three that I would say are are, are wise. Number one, you should always be voting on the membership of the church, the binding and loosing. That is the church's responsibility. And if we stop voting on membership, you, we cease to be a congregational church. So in, 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 in membership, I've already said enough on that. Two, leaders, right? So as in our, in our current structure, we may bring forward uh, people to be not, who are nominated to be, serve as elders or, or deacons, uh, but we can't make anyone an elder or make anybody a deacon. It's the church's affirmation of them. So the church has to vote, yes, we affirm this man is qualified to serve as a leader. We see that from Acts chapter 6. It says, when you are all assembled together, choose from among yourselves six to serve the needs of the widows. It was the, the, the church's assembly that did it, and the elders just affirmed it, what the church had already, already done. So leaders, membership, and I think the last category is just prudence. Big decisions in the life of the body that they need to discuss. So for us, recently, the merger, right? Are we going to merge with, with the church and, and all that? Well, that was two separate votes. One was the merger that involved membership, and the other one was, was a leadership involving Pastor Gary, right? Those are two decisions that were, that, were, that were necessary, but it was also just prudent. Is this wise for us to do? Um, so if we needed to buy a $1,000 um, vehicle, $1,000 in the grand scheme of our budget is probably not a big deal. We're going to let the, the deacons and the elders make that call. You know, just trust them to use wisdom and, and judgment to make best call with the resources that we have or the budget. Now, if I, if I wanted to, to buy a $50,000 RV, right, to, to house missionaries with, well, $50,000 is, you know, more than 25% of our budget. That's probably a pretty good decision to bring to the congregation, and you all say, Pastor, you're crazy. Why do you want to buy an RV? That's nuts, right? So it comes down to prudence. The first two are mandatory. Leaders, we see that in the New Testament. Um, Acts 20, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, Hebrews 13. Membership, and then everything else is just a matter of prudence. Those are the things that we vote on.
I don't have a lot of time to do this, but one of the things that I think is, is lost when you move away from congregationalism to a Presbyterian firmer church government, I think you lose the priesthood of all believers. Now, we see this in Adam. When Adam was set into the garden, God gave him authority as a, a priest king. God was the one who was in charge, and he set aside Adam as the priest king over the garden. He was the one who acted in God's place to, to exercise dominion over the land. We see that in Moses' time that he was going to lead a, a, a kingdom of, of, of priests unto his God. So they were going to be a kingdom of, of priests to, to glorify the name of the Lord. Now we, we fast forward to the New Testament. The prophecy in, in, in Ezekiel is that we would be uh, a kingdom of priests unto our God. That God was going to take our hearts of stone and, and give us hearts of flesh. So when we repent of our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, death on our behalf, and his resurrection and his one day return, what we are believing that the Holy Spirit at that moment has come up into our life and remade our dead hearts and made us alive. We are now, we are now um, called to be kingdom and priests to our God. We have a responsibility to live and act as priest kings like Adam did in the garden. Jesus was that priest king. He was the, the new Adam. The first Adam came and failed. The new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, came and did not fail. And now we are in Christ. We have the Spirit. So we have a responsibility to fulfill the, keys, the, the king priest function in the life of the church. This is why last week was so important that every believer, every person in the church is a believer. Because if every person is born again, they're going to make decisions and able to fulfill the priesthood of all believers. So every member of a church, I'm going to give you six things. Real quickly, then I'm going to pray and we'll be done. Six things every member of the church is responsible to do because they are born again by the Spirit. Number one, help preserve the gospel message. We saw that in Galatians chapter 1. Your job is to make sure that we are continuing to preach a pure gospel message. Now you think, well, of course, we are always going to preach a, a pure gospel message. It doesn't take a lot to have a church drift from the gospel. There are a lot of churches um, in town that I would say preach a prosperity-like gospel. They don't preach the prosperity gospel. It's just light on the gospel. It leans towards the prosperity gospel, right? Well, if you're leaning towards the prosperity gospel for a year or two years or three years from the pulpit, guess what happens to the people? They become taught and indoctrinated that that's the true gospel. It's subtle. And it could just happen with a new pastor. There's new, new churches in town that are, that, are, that are calling pastors. And, you know... We just going to be very careful with that. So number one, help preserve the gospel. Number two, help affirm gospel citizens. Help affirm who are Christians. That's what we do with baptism, bringing, you know, bringing people into membership through baptism or, or by testimony or by letter or by church, church discipline. Removing them. We either affirm that they are a gospel citizen or we remove that affirmation that they're not gospel citizens. And it doesn't mean ultimately that we are right. We can't see in people's hearts. But we have to know, based on your life, whether we think that you're a Christian or not. If someone is living in open, unrepentant sin and has no desire to change, they're probably not a Christian. And if we say that they are a Christian, we're helping that brother or sister be deceived. And one day they're going to stand before a holy God and they're going to go to hell. 
Let it sink in. That is your responsibility as a church member, to make sure people don't go to hell. By affirming and giving them confidence that they're in Christ. Because some, some people have, have weak conscience, right? And they, and they always think that they're, they're outside of God's will. Well, that person, we want to come along and encourage if They know you're in Christ. You're trying to live for the Lord. You're fellowship with the saints. Be confident that you know the Lord. But there's those others, and they may come every single week, but they have a dead heart. And they're living in blatant sin. And it's exposed. And instead of running from their sin and turning back to Christ, they just want to revel in their sin. Well, it's your responsibility, church, to protect the gospel, affirming or removing that affirmation. Three, attend members' meetings, right? This coming year, Lord willing, we'll have a lot more members' meetings. I think it's best for us to have conversations of memberships, who's going to come in the church or who's going to be removed, not in an open gathering, maybe on, during a service, even on a Sunday night or, or a Sunday morning, but in, in, a, in, a, in a, a time when just the church gathers, when we assemble together, attend members' meetings. Number four, disciple other church members. What is discipling? Do others spiritual good. We're all responsible for that. Just do a quick search on the one another's. Five, uh, share the gospel with outsiders, right? Our job is to, is to go make disciples. Well, we do that by teaching, that discipleship aspect, but also by baptizing, evangelism. We share the gospel with those who don't know Christ. We did what granted this week, talking to, to James about the gospel of Christ, that he would, he would repent and believe. It's one of the reasons why we ask every Wednesday, who shared the gospel this week, that we could be praying uh, for, uh, because that is all our calling, is to help that people um, come to know Christ by proclaiming the kingdom of God through repentance and faith. And then number six, every member should follow their leaders. We see that clearly from Hebrews uh, chapter 13, 7, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, 17, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Acts chapter 20. Because here's what happens when people become members of Park Baptist Church. What they're affirming is that they're affirming the leadership and they're affirming the membership. They're saying, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that my brothers and sisters are going to go to heaven. I'm going to encourage and exhort and love them so that they know and believe in Jesus. And I'm going to submit and follow the leaders of the church, right? As they lead us in sound doctrine and in good um, Bible, Bible teaching. Because the Holy Spirit, uh, Acts 20 says, makes pastors overseers of the flock. So if someone, if, if someone comes into our church and they want to join our church, what I know is that the Holy Spirit brought you here. If someone comes to our church and they don't like us and they leave, the Holy Spirit didn't bring them here. That's okay. They can go to another church and be fed and grown with and, and grow, grow there together. All that to say is I think congregationalism is, is a mark that we often assume, and when we assume it, you, as a congregation, don't take the responsibility that God has entrusted you with his word. He has entrusted you to make sure the people in this congregation are believing Christians, baptized, right, confessed public profession of that faith, and they're living it out. And when we, as a congregation, stop affirming sound doctrine and stop holding people accountable for the profession of faith they made in their baptism, we cease to be a congregational church and God will come down to us like he came down to the Galatians, come down to, to us like he came down to the Corinthians and says, you all, what are you doing? 
You are responsible, church member, for the glory of Christ. Let's work towards it. Father, we thank you for this congregation uh, that is given to us, uh, that you've given to us to help affirm us in our walks with you. God, I pray that we would not um, deny congregationalism in our practice um, or with our, um, how we arrange our lives, God. But God, that we would give ourselves, that, uh, give ourselves to this congregation to disciple each other, uh, to encourage each other as long as the day draws near. Um, and God, if necessary, uh, to rebuke us and loose us from this church so that we would turn from our sins and trust in you. God, I pray that from this message that you would help the people here tonight see that they have an incredible responsibility in the life of this church. An incredible, weighty responsibility, Father. I pray that you would help them see it, rejoice in it, and wield the keys of the kingdom with all wisdom by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.